Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Educate, advocate, and liberate. Melody Lee is a change maker and a force. Melody uses their voice and passion as a queer person of color to affect change and celebrate all identities and abilities in all bodies. Melody is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an entrepreneur, a keynote speaker, a podcaster, an educator, and an activist. They developed and founded Inclusive Therapists, offering a safer and simpler way to find culturally responsible and social justice therapists centered on the needs of Black, Indigenous, people of color, and the LGBTQIA community. We can't wait to learn about their movement, Melody is also passionate about animal welfare, which we love. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, first and foremost, I have to thank you for being the most flexible guest we've ever invited. Thank you so much for that. It means so much. <laughs> I do my people best. Think it's crazy. Oh, man, totally <laughs> appreciate it, really. Secondly, I want to thank you for being so willing to come on and share your story. So thank you for both of those right up front. I appreciate you. It's my honor to be here with y'all. Thank you, JD, for the invitation. For sure. So look, I know why I wanted to know you and what you do, but I want everybody else to know it. So tell them, who is Melody Lee? Oh, thank you. That's a big question. So I am, of course, many things. First, I'll lead with I'm a person that's really deeply loved. I come from a lineage of um, really loving people. And so my people are from Hong Kong. That is where my lineage is from. And uh, yeah, I was born in Hong Kong during British rule. So we are, were colonized people. And I like to lead with that because the understanding the impact of growing up in a British colony is part of my journey of understanding my identity, but also of healing. And it is what also drives my passion towards the work that I do in liberatory, anti-oppressive, decolonial mental health care. And so that's a little bit of the professional side, but that's also how it weaves into my identity. I stand upon the shoulders of my two grandmothers. <sighs> and today I do a little bit of this and that. So um, hopefully we can explore more of that together. Absolutely. That's beautiful, by the way. Yeah. So you describe yourself as colony born migrant and settler on the Turtle Island. Is there anything else you would add to what you just said about explaining that to people? Yes, absolutely. I want to acknowledge the land that I'm on. First of all, I am a settler. 
a diasporic settler on Turtle Island. Um, I am located on the land of the Tonkawa uh, tribe, Kowitikan Nation, um, among others, and um, in so-called Austin, Texas. And so my journey also led to displacement and migration. And so my family migrated to Turtle Island where we settled. And so part of the work that I do is being aware of my position, my positionality as a settler. What is my duty and role as a visitor on this land in connection to the peoples, the original peoples on this land? And so you will see that through my work, Indigenous sovereignty, land back, and also Black liberation are also central to our mission. I love the language you use. That's really amazing. Thank you for breaking that down. So what was the catalyst for you becoming a mental health liberation activist? And and say what that means to you, please. Yeah, thanks. Feels like there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe I'll start with my journey in becoming a mental health therapist. And so my training, my my original training was in education. And so when I was um, considering becoming an educator, I started to realize that things that we were trying to do in, in teaching in the classroom, you know, student performance and all of that, that is you know, impacted the students' well-being is impacted by their home lives and their community lives. And so while I love students and I love teaching, I always I started to think bigger picture. How can I make an impact on students' lives in their communities and also in their homes, which led me to study therapy to become a marriage and family therapist. As I was going through schooling and my training, I felt very isolated. I felt very alone. And oftentimes I may have been the only or one of the only minoritized visible person of color or queer uh, gender nonconforming person in the space. And then I didn't see myself in the curriculum. I didn't see myself in the training. And yet I felt that I had to just keep moving and and to complete this. And so after I completed my initial training, I knew right away that as soon as I got licensed and I start practicing, that I have to do it alongside people that get me. And so then uh, that led to my partner Sam and I starting Austin Counseling Collective, which is a group therapy practice in Austin that centers on people with marginalized identities, I also co-led Austin Therapists of Color to offer professional support and just encouragement and refuge for fellow therapists of color that often have this isolating experience too, to tend to one another, but also to share resources on how to best support our service users of color. And from there, I started having, you know, other therapists reach out and go, oh, I'm learning about awesome therapists of color. I want something like this in our city as well. How do you do this? And as I was sharing this information, I'm just seeing more and more therapists with marginalized communities, especially clinicians of color, reach out and really desiring that community. And so that is how I started to really start with building community and spaces for us with the intent to offer culturally responsive 
justice and liberation-oriented support for service users. On the other hand, I too was a recipient of therapy and I've been in therapy with clinicians that have gaslighted me, that have, you know, there've been times when I felt re-traumatized in therapy by therapists that simply did not have the know-how nor uh, cultural response responsiveness to tend to things such as uh, racialized trauma. And so I also kind of understood how challenging it is from a client perspective to find a therapist that gets me where I can just come in, not have, and just be myself, not have to explain my culture or what it's like to move through this world in my body. And so that is how these, you know, these desires started to come together in the form of inclusive therapists, which is both a directory and a mental health resource for people with marginalized identities, but also a training, educational and professional platform for therapists so that we can grow and journey together. So you said a mouthful and I could I feel did. my no, no, not in a negative <laughs> way, in, a, in, a, in an amazing way just poignant. So I teach grad school. And one of the things that I'm obsessed with is getting uh, new clinicians to understand that having a multicultural lens is clinical. Yeah. And to understand that you cannot, because they always want to separate it. You know, can you give me the clinical perspective? Because I always bring culture into it. And so really hammering this home in my consultations and training that we have to develop a lens, you know, that we look through that is both multicultural, but most importantly, understand that that's clinical. I just feel like that's something that's not taught in school. I was fortunate to go to Smith and, you know, I'm a late bloomer. So I, I figured out a lot of stuff in my journey there, but I became really obsessed with how to teach others about it. So when I saw everything you're doing, it's so exciting. I mean, on one hand, I'm, I'm envious that you know you did it at this time in your life. On the other hand, I'm just so grateful and thrilled that it's happening because it's so needed, you know. And and I'm tired. I'm an old dog, so I'm so glad other people are coming through to really broaden it the way that you're doing it. I mean, it truly is inclusive. So it's amazing. I love your your drive and your commitment, and and that you're getting to see, you know, sort of the benefits of what you've committed to. It really is incredible. Thank you so much. I'm deeply touched and I'm so with you that conversations about culture, oftentimes as I was going through school, it's usually on the footnote, right? Or we'll have one multicultural 101 diversity 101 course and it's separate. Whereas, you know, for for myself, I just know that it it is a part of my being. I mean, my culture is integrated with all forms of my well-being and to separate that is colonial. It, there is this forced separation of beinghood and how can we tend to the full person in a more integrated way. Yeah. And also thank you for your kindness. I feel like I'm just one kind of one branch of this thriving tree yes. um, that is rooted in the ancestral wisdom of, of so, so many, you know, indigenous, mm -hmm. black and people of color activists, teachers, and that I get to draw energy yeah. and, and knowledge from, but also I'm uh, very inspired by future generations that also teach me a lot emerging therapists that are just bringing in these novel radical ideas and energy and movement. And they also push me, you know, forward to, to keep moving. 
That's wonderful. You know, when you said isolated in the classroom, I can't tell you how many students of color, students from the global majority, who have reached out to me and said, it's the first time in your class I haven't felt alone. I love that you start the class saying, I teach through my blackness. Let me put that up front. And that they felt seen, heard, and had a voice. I mean, that, that makes me cry and feel honored, you know? It's like so sad. You pay your money and that's your experience. That's crazy mm-hmm. to me. It's not the way it should be. Yes, yes. So in your words, you lead a mental health liberation movement. I love this whole paragraph here. To decolonize, disrupt, dismantle oppressive mental health practices. In community, we restore, reimagine, reclaim our healing. I'd like you to break that down a little bit. It's very powerful. Thank you. Uh, Yes, I get excited, but also nervous to talk about it. Um, So much of the work we do, it's just really, it's in the community itself. And so for me, mental health liberation, like mental health is just one discipline or one aspect of um, what is, you know, transdisciplinary movement of liberation. And so this happens to be my specialization. So I'm asking myself, what can um, we do with the resources that we have to bring about change? First, it's the recognition that the mental health field or the mental health industrial complex is originally rooted in Eurocentricism, white supremacy, cis heteronormativity, ableism, capitalism, all the isms, all the phobias. Exactly. And and it attempts to, and it, it also extracts, it extracts knowledge and wisdoms and wellness practices from colonized communities, which then they repackage, mm-hmm. put a price on it, put diagnostic codes on it to sell back to people that have been injured through colonization. And for me, this is completely nonsensical. Part of this work is helping us really come to realize what we, well, I would say for myself as a mental health practitioner, what I might be complicit in by being in this profession. If I am not actively dismantling and disrupting these powers, these systems that hold so much power that can do harm, then I am complicit in the harm. Um, At the same time, the hope comes from if we can gather in community and say, we have to do things differently. We have the power to also change the future of this field. Um, You know, and we can join forces. That is when we actually get to reclaim and restore wellness to us. Love it. Perfect. So, you know, I just, I can't go ahead till I just digest that because I love so much about it. I love the idea of community. I worked on the front line for many years in marginalized communities and felt very alone and had supervision by white clinicians who, you know, would tell me how to do therapy in my own community. And it was so stressful. So such a stressful time. And they really did not understand when I'd say, well, in this culture, this is what's common or this is what is practiced. So I can't just come in there with the boundaries you've created from a Eurocentric lens and apply them. It, it just doesn't work the same way. I'm going to scare them off. And it was a constant battle. 
It was a battle to stand up for that in school. It was a battle to deal with that being supervised by clinicians. So I love the idea of community supporting, empowering, and, and sort of holding this process so that it's, it's not you alone anymore. It's not, not a, you're not alone anymore. That's very powerful to me. Thank you for sharing your experience. And, and as I'm hearing that, that also takes a toll. Having to move through that system takes a a deep toll. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the truth. Uh, Mm. So, you know, I continue to discuss, as we all do from the global majority, the impact of racialized trauma and intergenerational trauma in my teaching and consultations. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the impact? I mean, you've said something about it, some things about it already, but I would love to elaborate a little bit more on, you know, the 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 greatest, the greater impact. Like people just don't seem to understand. So I try to do it in storytelling because that is, I think, user-friendly. You know, like today I woke up and you know how you check social media and you get to look at a celebrity. The first thing I check for is who looks like me or from the global majority was killed today. And what can I do in my bit of activism to give that person a voice on my platform, small or whatever, wherever I, I attempt to do that. And that takes a, a toll on all of us. So I just want to just hear you put language to your perspective and experience of the impact. I will do my best. I regard Resma Menachem as a teacher For and sure. Resma's book, um, My Grandmother's Hands, was really informative in my understanding of racialized trauma and first understanding that trauma is held in the body, that it is not an emotion, it's not a singular event. And so that toll is held in the body. And, you know, currently, you know, I can only speak from my experience of, you know, it's been almost two years of encountering anti-Asian racialized violence. And so that means getting up in the morning, even as I want to go to the grocery store, I'm nervous. Like, am I going to have racialized slurs yelled at me? Is is someone going to spit at me? I worry about my parents' well-being. They're elderly. Are they safe? Are they going to be pushed over by people? You know, and so not only is racialized trauma the impact of an act of violence, but it is the toll, the weight of navigating the world um, without being able to relax into (laughs) safety. And from an intergenerational perspective, elders and parents do their best to inform and to teach their children how to stay safe. And a lot of times these mechanisms, these coping strategies, while they may be effective, they may not be beneficial to relationship building, for example, or how one um, navigates school and, and other systems, you know. And so, I, I, yeah, like I learned a lot of ways to cope, how to survive and how to do well or even thrive in white dominant spaces and over time that just wears down on not only my body but also my soul and spirit and I consider myself very fortunate in a lot of ways my my family has a lot of privilege we were able to migrate um we 
My, my parents are, are educated. I have the privilege to learn English, for example, but knowing that these are privileges that a lot of people of color, people of global majority don't have or have fewer privileges to, to not, it, this just goes so deep. Like, yeah, I, this cannot racialize trauma, but also racialized trauma healing cannot be separate from mental mental health care. They have to come together. And the other part of it is also, what about white folks? What does healing and repair look like for white-bodied individuals? How does being a white-bodied individual in a white supremacist world impact you know, their mental wellness and their relationships. So there's a lot, there's definitely a lot to unpack. And my heart is that we as clinicians not only get informed, but also that we find our healing. So from a more healed place, we're able to extend healing to others. Yeah, I love that. You know, you said something about privilege and I flinch at that because I don't see your family as privileged. I see your family as Privilege, when I think of privilege, I think of unearned. And your family earned everything that they did. They were strategic. Your parents worked together, I'm guessing. They received their, you know, worked for their education and they shared it with you. I don't see that as privilege. I see that as forcing access. And it's pretty incredible that they were able to do that and provide for you what they were in order for you to do the work you're doing. So that's the legacy. I don't, I don't see that as privileged at all. I see that as hardworking and earned. So that's an amazing story that they they provide. Well, thank you. I I need to sit back and digest that. Um, So thank you. I'm receiving and I honor my parents and and all that they've sacrificed for me as well. You know, uh, I I hear that so uh, clearly coming from you and a lot of the work that I do in cross-cultural work, people whose families have immigrated is understanding how to honor that legacy, you know, because there's so much pressure to assimilate you know, and, and, and ignore the need for integrating parts of self. And so uh, there's an, I, know, I understand the internal, you know, conflict, the battle, the struggle. And so I, I like to focus on honor, honoring a legacy because it's so important and that gets lost sometimes. The other thing is, you know, yeah, Resma's work with white bodies and the impact and the trauma, you know, I get it. It's so, he's just so amazing with how he really forces an understanding of white body trauma and this whole legacy of white supremacy. My challenge is I still am getting attacked by white bodies on social media every time I post something. (laughs) So it's hard for me to have compassion for white body trauma when they keep coming for my jugular when I'm trying to educate. So I just have to realize that while, while I'm very competent and cross-cultural work, I am challenged by the compassion that's required to tolerate and manage, you know, that, that aggressive, it's not fragility, it's aggressive, you know, constantly manifesting in this need to target and tell me I'm the victim while acting like the victim. That's just a fascinating dynamic for me. So I hear it, I'm challenged by it. <laughs> you mean making you the perpetrator? Always. Yeah. So I, I, I understand it intellectually. I'm just, I'm, I'm still working on how to make sense of that in my work. Um, so I describe myself as having cultural competence because I've been on this journey for over 25 years, you know, doing trainings when we call it diversity and my learning is ongoing. 
I, I understand that you you language it differently. And I, I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit. Sure. And my work is always in evolution as well. And language changes and it's constantly changing and I'm constantly learning too. Some terms I like to use right now to describe my work is culturally affirming and also culturally responsive. And I lead with culturally affirming because I work in a field where our ways of being and our practices of wellness have been pathologize and stigmatize. Our strengths have then been turned around and told that there's something wrong with us. For example, I come from a very collectivist culture, according to the DSM or whatever, like we might be deemed enmeshed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, actually, (laughs) this is how we've survived. And it's something that I love about my culture, but um, we have been told we're doing it wrong. And so culturally affirming starts from a place of humility to be able to identify not only the strengths of other cultures, but to understand the why. Why is this, why is this value important to this culture? What does it mean um, in connection to the land, the people, you know, the, the, the more than humans, the other than humans? And so how can we come from a place of, um, of reverence really towards one another's cultures? And the other part, which is culturally responsive, is to understand also the impact of things that we've talked about, like racialized violence, oppression, you know, genocide, um, imperialism, these things that so many of us, our lineages have experienced. And how are we able to identify when a so-called symptom that we, a mental health therapist could easily just, again, put a DSM label on it, but actually to say, let's slow down. Is there more? Is there more happening here? Is this just anxiety? Is this just depression? Or is there more underneath the surface that if I come from a culturally responsive lens would be able to tend to? And so the combination of that is currently what I try to teach and uh, sometimes when I hear cultural cultural competence especially in the ways that white body clinicians use them it almost sounds like a checkbox mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm culturally competent yeah sure says who right. <laughs> says who and right. how does one get there how does one become yeah. competent or is it a continued journey it's relational then in that relationship there's also, you know, sometimes rupture and repair needs to happen. There's a lot that goes on, but it's the commitment to continue, continuing to learn, to be in community and to, yeah, to lean into these moments when it could be easier just to, you know, put a diagnostic label on things. So please pathologize my whole life. I've been oppositional defiant. I've been the angry black woman. I've been it all. And so I absolutely agree with you about the pathology that we have to deal with. I have fought with psychiatrists over it. I've, you know, helped uh, clients how to present, show them how to present to the psychiatrist. If they say this, don't respond this way because they're going to die. I mean, I feel you deeply on all of that. I guess my challenge is when white bodied clinicians use any of it, (laughs) to be quite frank with you you know, culturally competent, affirmative, or responsive. I have a problem with it. I don't have a reaction when communities of color use it. And for the very reason you've stated, there is a way of wanting to 
check it off and contain it so it's not an ongoing, painful, arduous process, which it is. And I love that you use lifestyle. I use lifestyle as well. You know, it's cultural work until it becomes a lifestyle. And then it just, it, it is, it exists, it emerges constantly. You know, it's apparent in your life. So I think that's my challenge. My challenge is, is uh, having the privilege to call yourself anything in this work when it's not your lifestyle. I think that's what it is. So they all work, but it's challenging for me. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense. And you earlier said it's aggression, not fragility. That's also my response to, you know, Robin D'Angelo's work, writing about oppression when one hasn't experienced racialized oppression. Like, how does one become informed from an embodied sense to be able to speak on that? That just baffles me, and I want to throw that all out. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I want to throw out, uh, what's the other word, Susie? I say all the time I want to throw out bias, implicit bias. I want to throw that mm. out too mm. because I think it gives a pass. You know, it's, I, I'm just into more directness like you own racism. What are you going to do about it? As opposed to we all have implicit biases. <laughs> you know, I just, I just think the directness and peeling away the language is so important to get to the, to concretize what is happening right now. You're not my ally. I don't need an ally. This is your war. If anything, I can choose to be your ally. And then maybe mm -hmm. I won't. I'm just going to protect myself because I'm the one being killed. So I feel very assertive about making things like that clear. And I think people can get very conversational about all of this when we are talking about genocide. We're talking about genocide. Yes. I'm not, yes. I don't want to have conversations anymore. I want to figure yes. out how to create um, action. I am so with you not just conversational, but as a white person, defensive. Yeah, well, that's that's what happens. That's a part of the fragility label. Um, so yeah, so the other word for me, or the acronym that the white bodies have wrapped themselves around so tightly is BIPOC. And mm. I don't have a response, I don't have a reaction when the global majority uses it, and I have a visceral reaction when white body clinicians use it. It feels like a way of just wrapping us all up into a nice, neat bundle that intellectualizes our experience and dehumanizes it by the intellectualization, which we know mental health does so well. You know, yes. if we can make it academic. It's much more palatable. And I, I don't want to be lumped together unless we are doing it amongst ourselves. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense to me. BIPOC in itself, yes, it's it's dehumanizing, it lumps us all together, but also that implies that the default is people, mm. which is white people. Yes. Whiteness is default. Yeah. And that's really, really icky. And so I'm of two minds with that. And I love how you differentiate between who's using the term. Mm -hmm. That for me, BIPOC. If, when I'm in community with fellow Black, Indigenous, and people of color, that's we claim this. This is something I love about us. I love being a person of color. I love my heritage. And I can come together and celebrate this about us. But um, on the other hand, yes, when, when white-bodied individuals use that, that is, that is othering. Oftentimes yes. I hear that as othering. That's like it. We are default and there's those people and let's go help. Let's go help the BIPOC. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and they use it on the threads, the clinician threads. Oh God, they throw it around. Oh, there's a great thing for the BIPOC community. I, just, <laughs> I get so, I get a twitch. Um, uh -huh. The other one is non-black. Really? 
I mean, non-white, mm. that's it, non-white. Mm. That's mm. another one that gets me. It's like, so I'm nothing if I'm not white. Like just language is so important and people just need yes. to recognize when they're privileging their language where they just co-opt things. They do it in you know fashion, right? They go into the communities uh, from the global majority and, and grab fashion and culture. And then like you said, you know, sell it back to us. Mm-hmm. And so it's all from the same root of capitalism and white supremacy. So I, I yes. find it very challenging and I always want to, ch- I tell students right away, don't use BIPOC in my class mm. uh, because I don't think it's yours to use. I think you have to ask people how they choose to be identified if you're talking about people. And if you're talking about a particular group of people, talk about that particular group of people after you ask them how they'd like to be identified. Don't tell me, oh, I have some BIPOC, BIPOC clients. Oh, it's a trigger. Can you tell? <laughs> I am with you. Yeah. BIPOC clients means nothing. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything. Um, yeah. And it just, just reemphasizes the violence of the racial hierarchy to begin with. And it makes no sense. So much of this makes no sense. <laughs> okay. It doesn't, but they keep selling it. So yeah. it makes some sense to somebody, or at least it's making them some money. Um, I really want people to understand how inclusive therapists work. So I'd like you to take the time and just talk about as a client, what you can do. And as a clinician, how you can become a part of the community. I also call my community collective. I call, you know, communities from oftentimes I'm differentiating between the individualistic community and the collective community and how they compare. So I I love the language there. And I'm wondering if you can, um, yeah, just walk us through. What does a client do? What does a clinician do to be a part of the community? Yes, thank you for sharing. So when it comes to inclusive therapists, when a person goes to the website, the first thing that they'll see is our line that says care from a therapist who gets you. Find the therapist that celebrates your identity. So our first mission is really to make it simpler and safer for people with marginalized identities to find a therapist that um, share in social justice, and liberatory values. So really, I find I, I think we are an alternative to other colonial uh, you know, directories like um, Psychology Today. Mm-hmm. Don't want to talk about them. They're highly problematic with um, all that they do. And so my heart is to offer a, a simpler, safer space for people that have been burned by therapy or have been neglected by the mental health field. So come in, find therapists. The therapist um, profiles are more transparent that they have to spell out their values. And um, also we're very trans, we encourage our therapist members to be very transparent about their identity as well. So that, because I believe when we're talking about informed consent, informed consent means that the client has to have the information. And a lot of times in, you know, when looking for a therapist, therapists are so obscure about their information. Um, And I think that really is a way to protect their power, but that's, you know, a bigger conversation. And so we want to make it easier for people to find a therapist, connect with a therapist. So that's one part of the work that we do. On the back end, what we do is we go through a verification with every therapist member that applies to be part of the directory. Essentially, they have to write many essays to become a part of our directory. 
We ask about, about questions about the work um, that they've done in racialized identity, in sexuality and gender, in understanding of tending to disabled communities, neurodivergent communities. And so there's an, it's a pretty involved application process, which I feel like it's important. So there's that part. But in terms of coming together as a community, we also offer events, trainings. We have a monthly uh, fireside chat that's free and open to all learners. And so that is clinicians and also anyone really that wants to learn about a mental health topic from a decolonial lens where we invite diverse speakers, members of our community to teach and really amplifying the voices, especially of Black, Indigenous, and clinicians of color, mm -hmm. um, but also um, clinicians with um, intersecting marginalized identities, really putting, creating a platform to amplify our voices that are often um, silenced in institutions and in academia. Um, in addition to that, we also um, as a community, do advocacy work um, through education, um, but also to rise up against unjust practices and to push back and to shine light to things such as, you know, the anti-trans bills that are continuing to be pushed through, especially targeting trans teens, trans athletes, and other, other you know, I don't want to say social issues that minimizes it, but for simplicity's sake, social issues that have a direct impact on mental and emotional well-being. So we work together and I'm really grateful for our community because there are a lot of passionate people that are, are there and we're able to be in a lot of spaces, but also be united in our mission. Amazing. It really is. It's just so well done, well thought out. So a client needs to find a clinician they can relate to. What do they do? They go on the website and they can simply put in what they're looking for. So they'll, they can look for a therapist through specialization, through identity, and then they'll land on a map and they'll be able to find the clinicians closest to them and contact the clinicians directly. And also one thing that I love, I can't believe I forgot this, is especially for people that are seeking therapy for the first time that may feel like this process is a little bit daunting, we offer a free therapist matching service. Yeah. So they can tell us what they're looking for in a therapist and we will personally suggest and match them with therapists and so have the therapist reach back out to them. And so we can think of it as kind of like a therapy concierge. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And that's, that's something really, that we love to do. That's fabulous. Amazing. And so do the therapists have to take health insurance? Do they take health insurance and private pay? What does that look like? So each clinician decides how, how they want to practice. And so um, that is also part of the transparency. So on their profiles, it'll say the insurance that they accept. If they're private pay or out of pocket, they list their fees. And also many of our clinicians are offering reduced fee teletherapy, especially during times of COVID. So that was one of our initiatives during COVID to offer reduced fee teletherapy for people that are financially impacted by COVID. And many of our therapist members are continuing to do so. And they'll state that on their profiles. 
It's amazing. You have a whole reparation situation worked up in there. I love it. Yes. So look, I don't have to ask you the usual question. It's clear how you're changing the narrative and you're doing it pretty expeditiously as well. So just tell us what's next for you. I mean, you're doing it all. What, what could possibly be next? Oh my goodness. We do have things that's coming up next. Oh my God. Right. Before we go there, I want to I want to mention that our memberships uh, for therapists—they're on a sliding scale. So therapists okay. that want to be a part of the directory pay—they get to choose their fee. And also, we have sponsored memberships for all Indigenous and Black therapists. So that is part of the reparation work that model that we're attempting to follow. And so we invite, you know, indigenous and black therapists to, to join us. Their memberships are fully sponsored as well as trainings. Our trainings are sponsored for indigenous and black therapists as well. Um, in terms of what's next. So I haven't really talked about this, but we have been working on something exciting, which is our nonprofit branch, which is about to launch in spring of 2022. It's called Mental Health Liberation, and we're wanting to extend our services further, but for it to be community funded. So the first part of the initiative is going to be therapy fund for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to offer free therapy services. Um, and we will do the work to connect them with therapists to help people get set up and to feel hopefully supported in the process. Also in my heart is to invest into future generations of clinicians with marginalized identities in a couple of ways. First is offering mentorship and peer support. So we can come and be together to undo the aloneness that so many yes. of us feel and to be together and to learn together. My vision is by the time you know a cohort completes their their schooling, then we can also hopefully um, with community fund things such as um, exam fees and licensure fees, which can be a barrier oh um, oftentimes for yeah for That's students good. or emerging therapists with marginalized uh, identity. And then um, looking further ahead, I also we are in the process of creating an equitable supervision circle. Oh, amazing. Because the supervision, super, supervision practice, this tradition is also extremely hierarchical mm -hmm. and classist. And how do we make this equitable and to flatten the hierarchy and also to bridge that supervisor-supervisee relationship in an equitable way? So that is part of my dream as well. And we are working on it and we're about to launch mm -hmm. in the spring. Well, I hope you don't stop dreaming because everything you're dreaming that's coming to fruition is absolutely incredible. You know, just so much gratitude for all that you're doing sincerely. Please give all your uh, uh, contact information so people know where to find you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm receiving and I will continue <laughs> dreaming. So to connect with Inclusive Therapists, find us on inclusivetherapists.com. We're on Instagram at Inclusive Therapists. And we're also on, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all that, too. You'll be able to find us through the website. To connect with me directly, you can find me at MelodyLee.com, M-E-L-O-D-Y-L-I.com, or at Melody Hope Lee on Instagram. And your LinkedIn. 
and my LinkedIn, and I'm like here and there. <laughs> Not a big social media person. If you want to see pictures of my pugs, oh, welcome, pugs, to, oh. welcome, welcome to my page. Oh. <laughs> Don't tell my sister. She loves pugs. <laughs> oh, they are the best. Oh, she's going to stalk you. Just ignore her. If the last name's Fuller, just ignore her. <laughs> well, Melody, Susie, do you want to thank Melody first? Oh. What an incredible podcast this was. Thank you so much. And I just want to, you know, I want to say I'm just sitting here in my white body listening. I don't want to interrupt. And I'm just listening to both of your experiences and to your imagination and your integration and the way that you've connected and integrated all these different parts, not only of yourself, but of the community it's just it's really beautiful to watch and to listen to and i hope white clinicians are listening thank you so much susie i'm receiving that thank you uh so promise to come back because we make everybody promise okay i promise to come back i look forward to more dialogue maybe we can dive deeper yes, yes. absolutely this is just an introduction all that you're doing and all that you're thinking and i i look forward to exploring it even more you're fascinating you're wonderful thank you so much sincerely this was really educational and important for people to hear so thanks for spending this time with us thank you I'm humbled thank you thank you thank you jd thank you susie so so grateful to be here with you all Excellent. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. And JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.